Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 156 of Fun with Cars for coverage of the Canadian Grand Prix in Montreal. I'm Robin Warner. And I am Jim Lau, and this is uh, just an awesome race that we had today. Um, there's, there's plenty to talk about, and uh, really, I guess, starting from qualifying, but this was one that we were able to watch live and uh, take part in and, and live tweet and all that. It was a lot of fun. Eastern time zone. you got to love it. Eastern time zone and just Montreal. Everybody loves Montreal. Uh, I've been there one time. It was four years ago, and uh, really, really enjoyed it, and would definitely go back. I've um, also been there one time, but it was nowhere near the Formula One race. Ah, uh, well, there you go. Uh, but anyway... Uh, Definitely some cool stuff to talk to, and as a bonus, we have some coverage from our pit reporter slash uh, photographer, roving uh, man of mystery, Jamie Price, um, who will be joining us later on in the show, so that is all kind of fun. Who is, ironically enough, not actually that mysterious, but a man of mystery nonetheless. Well, he's a a man about the world, as it were. Yes, a very worldly individual. Yes. Yes. Anyway, um, (laughs) so I guess to to jump into it, uh, Nico Rosberg was on pole. And, and that is worth there were no about. yellow flags or any nonsense or whatever. And Absolutely. even Hamilton had the last lap and, you know, was, was crossing the line after, uh, after Rosberg and pole, but his lap was just not as good. So it was sort of a, a, a bit of a switch from the usual where, okay, the Monaco one, you know, I don't think was intentional. I think neither of us thought it was like any kind of weird conspiracy or whatever, um, that, uh, that yeah, Nico set up a good lap and then he caused a, a yellow, presumably by accident. Um, but uh, it was well, we slightly, will, slightly weird circumstances, though. We will still say that uh, fundamentally you and I still believe that it was by accident, that right. he didn't deliberately cause said yellow. But yes, this time around, both Mercedes drivers had two chances at going for pole. And uh, like this time, Nico Rosberg was legitimately faster the first time around in Q3. But unlike last time, Nico Rosberg improved slightly on his already pull lap time, and uh, Lewis Hamilton did not improve. He made a mistake in the second sector, or maybe not necessarily a specific mistake, but was slow in the second sector compared to his previous time and could not improve. Nico Rosberg very legitimately got pole position. Right, and in the interview, you know, Hamilton was clearly down about it, which I guess you would be, uh, but... He didn't say, you know, really give them like an excuse like, oh, well, you know, I could have done better or this was that or whatever. It was just kind of like, yeah, I didn't, it didn't come together well for me. You know, he sort of, uh, you know, I guess he owned up to it and, and that it, he wasn't claiming that, you know, Rosberg did anything weird or the team or whatever. I mean, and he, I don't think he would have had a reason to say that because I, like we mentioned, he had the last possible chance, which is usually the best in terms of track conditions. Um, but true. that's, it's what's interesting. The way the qualifying has shaken out. I mean, that was, you know, for a while it was just a single lap. Everyone gets one shot at it, and that's it. And if you screwed that lap up, then you screwed up, and that was bad. Um, but part of the idea with knockout qualifying, um, you know, then we had knockout qualifying in, in general, or just overall, like, hey, here's a session, here's an hour and a half, whoever sets the best time, have at it. Then the problem with that is there's so much traffic, and the timing gets weird, and the weather can change, and so on. So that we've kind of evolved this crazy qualifying format that we have with the three rounds, and people are trying to get around traffic, and so on, which I think actually works pretty well. But it still ultimately comes down to um, sometimes just one shot. I mean, certainly the Red Bulls do this, like at the end of Q2, where they could be, um, you know, everyone goes out in Q1, sets a time, whatever. But then, you know, at the end of Q2, that's where some teams are on softer tires, some teams stay with the harder because they're trying to conserve for Q3. And it's like, you know, you start to really get some strategy there. Um, And sometimes the Red Bulls will not have set a lap so that if something crazy happens in the closing stages of Q2, it's possible that both of them could be knocked out then they'll go out, and if all goes to plan, they'll set a, a perfectly good lap that'll get them into the top 10. That's all they need to move on, and then they'll go do their proper preparations for Q3. 
But part of the idea of these sessions, rather than just a simple one shot at, hey, go go do pole, it's your one, you know, your one shot for qualifying, should be that you have more than one shot at it. You know, that you can say, okay, I, I you know, I have my lap. Okay, I'm going to try it another way. I'm going to try a couple different things. You know, you sort of have a banker lap in there in case whatever you, you know, in case you push too hard or something. But sure. um, but it has kind of evolved back around that where people realize, teams and you know, engineers realize that. The track does get faster as you lay down more rubber, and of course temperatures and and weather you can't you know you can't always predict accurately whatever. But in general, you know it's just toward the end of the session it's going to be faster and faster times. So it's a bit it's a bit of a shame because it's you know for Lewis to say yeah I just I lost out on my one fastest you know fastest time. It's like well you you know they, like you say they both had two runs at it. They kind yes. of do their one run and then almost always they improve upon it. It's you know it's kind of a surprise if they do the second run. They say that, you know and then they they come back out and if they don't improve the time usually that's a bit of a surprise um but uh and that second run usually is in many ways the one in the one chance to say okay this is the one lap where i take as many risks as possible and really push to pull out every last possible bit of lap time here that that really is the one and only lap that you truly want to do that because the earlier time when you're in q3 is more of your let's get a solid banker lap in there quote unquote right and then from there, that's when you really say, okay, what is the last little bits I can eke out? Yeah, so, you know, I think it would be potentially more interesting if, and it's a 12-minute session, which does go by pretty quickly when you're watching it, but there is, you know, there's some chances in there to do uh, a fair number of runs and go out, set a lap. Um, you know, you're not really going to try to harder tires. That's not really going to help you unless you're really trying to do something interesting for strategy for the race, but it's going to be soft tires. if there's some kind of anomaly that makes the harder tire faster for some reason. Right. Um, but it's not like you're going to try different, oh, let's try both compounds and see what happens. Usually by that point of the weekend, you should know your relative paces. And almost always, if, if you've got the temperature, you know, heat profile sort of cycle worked out, that you'd be able to do better on the softer tires. I mean, that's the idea of the softer tires is that they shouldn't last as long. But over a single lap, should be fine. But, uh, but yeah, I mean, I guess there could be something if you're trying to do a three-lap run to say, okay, actually on lap three, you can do pretty well with a hard tire once it's scrubbed in the right way. But to try some different things and have some different chances at it. Because 10, 10 cars on one track, you know, and these tracks are anywhere from sort of, you know, a mile and a half to sort of four or five miles long. It's really, you shouldn't have problems with traffic. I mean, yes, everyone's going to try to get to the, to be the same, you know, right at the flag, right as it's, you know, right before it hunts to zero so they can get their last laps in and so on. But ultimately there should be room for everyone to safely do these, you know, come in and out of, of the pits and do what they need to do and uh, get a couple laps in. And I think that's also more fun as, as fans. I mean, there are parts of even Q3, which is a pretty short session where there's nobody on track because everyone kind of comes out at the very beginning, sets a lap, then they go back to the garage, they're looking at data, they're looking sure. at temperatures, sure. last minute little adjustments for what wings and tire pressures and whatever before the proper run. So there is sometimes even that downtime. Um, but if, if it you know could be something... Um, if there were an advantage to doing it, and, you know, I'm sure teams are always looking at different things that are advantages, but to get out and uh, set, you know, multiple laps and be able to sort of have a couple of different goes at it uh, before really just saying, oh, this is the one, this is the time, and we either get it or we don't, then maybe problems like this, you know, for Lewis, he, it's a problem as far as he's concerned, um, to uh, to have one little mistake, you know, cost you pole position, and then ultimately didn't really matter, I guess, the way yeah. it panned out in the race. But, uh, well, I guess maybe it did, because... Um, it, it absolutely did. Yeah. It, it's hard to say that definitively, but in Lewis's mind, it played a role, and it's solid logic. So I, you can't argue with that too much. And there was another thing that I noticed in this qualifying session that I thought was striking. There's been so much conversation about 
the Mercedes engine being superior to the Ferrari and the Renault power plants. Fine, fair enough. We agree with that. However, Canada, the Cirque Gilles Villeneuve is very much a horsepower and braking power track. There's a lot of straight line, a lot of chicane. And this track had Nico Rosberg on pole with a 1 minute 14.8 second lap time. And uh, Lewis Hamilton just behind that. But Sebastian Vettel's um, P3 lap time was only 6, 7 tenths behind. Not the usual second, second and a half we've been seeing earlier in the year. So this style racetrack actually tightened the field up, which I think shows in a fairly striking manner that it is truly something that Mercedes has done with the chassis that is giving them an edge more so than the engine. Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. And uh, it's it's interesting to see, like you saw, you know, in Monaco, you know, we saw, you know, some people say, oh, it's a very different track, different, you know, it's going to be more about the driver than the cars. But it's like, obviously the cars, it, it's all it's all a package and, you know, who happens to be good where and so on. But um, it is interesting to see the dynamic uh, and, and how much faster just the Mercedes can can. I mean, partly it's muscled on the straights, but then also when it are, when it is these slow corners, uh, you know, you, you get down there, you you know, you sort of you want to slow down as little as possible to get around the corner. Sure. So a difference in handling, you know, on a straight that is mostly straights and you know straights and tight corners um, can still be a really big difference because if they don't have to slow down as much as other cars to help slide through a corner or whatever, then uh, it can be a really big difference. So I mean, that's that's why that's why it's interesting to watch. You know, the the cars aren't all the same. Exactly you know, that we right. can that there are differences in different ways of trying to solve you know engineering challenges and so on. I mean, that's that's just. You know that's that's what the fun of it is. So more um, fascinating and interesting things as cool. well. Qualifying really on its own was quite fascinating. Uh, P three through P six, which was Sebastian Vettel, Valtteri Bottas, Felipe Massa, and Daniel Ricciardo. So basically, Red Bull and Williams. Their Q three qualifying times were separated by less than fifty thousandths of a second. They were on top of each other effectively for qualifying. Uh, you know, uh, Sebastian Vettel outqualified Valtteri Bottas by two thousandths of a second. And getting back to seventh, which was Fernando Alonso, he was another three tenths, two three tenths behind those guys. And then we get a few more tenths back to um, STR McLaren and the second Ferrari of Raikkonen. Right, but. It's extremely tight amongst uh, second in the Constructors' Championship through, what would you call that, sixth? Where is STR these days? Maybe seventh? Yeah, they're seventh. Yeah. So, really, what we have here is we started 2014 with a very revelatory um, new formula for how to build these cars, and we are less than halfway through the season and we're definitely starting to see the teams understanding the best way to do things versus, um, you know, more effective versus less effective ways of getting to speed. Right. And everyone's trying to catch Mercedes, but they are getting close. So there's a lot of, a lot of battles developing 
um, down the field, down the order. Yeah, and that's a good point about uh, Red Bull and Williams. I mean, those are the closest ones. I mean, you, you, you know, doesn't get much closer than that. You know, we're talking hundreds and thousands of seconds here. So right. to see, you know, wh- who finds an edge there, because that is that could be the difference between, uh, you know, if both Mercedes finish a race or whatever, you know, the difference between, you know, third and down to seventh and whatever, which is obviously huge for points and different things. And everyone says, well, Mercedes uh, don't always finish all the races, and there's uh, more to be had there, including, of course, today, um, an epic victory for Daniel Ricciardo in the Red Bull. So, well put. You know, well done, <laughs> uh, well done, Red Bull, and especially well done uh, as as Ricciardo. Uh, to tie into what you're just saying, to come from a, a car that was didn't even run in testing, rubbish at the start of the season, you know, did well with it, then had this sensor thing, and you know, it, you know, worked around that, you know, to talk about you know messing with your emotional side of things, whatever, to be on the podium and then later go, all oh, right, no, that didn't count. Then he has all this car trouble in China and all these things. Now to come back and take advantage of situations, drive smart, outdrive his four-time world champion teammate, whatever, and come and, and you know win the, the first Red Bull victory of the season, the first non-Mercedes victory of the season, and is the smiling Aussie himself, Daniel Ricciardo. I mean that's that's just really you know really well done for him. He's very happy to see that. And of course, and even Rosberg could smile on this podium today because he was second place, but not to his teammate. He still made a lead, you know, extended his lead over Hamilton, which is all he cares about right now at all. I that mean, yeah, okay, winning Ricardo is smile than not, but... is quite contagious, right? And you can't knock the guy. And uh, Jamie Price himself said that Ricardo is one of the nicest drivers there. Everybody likes him. He's just a very likable, nice person. And I believe we talked about this one or two podcasts ago. He shows everyone. He shows everyone that, hey, I'm a Formula One driver. That's amazing. I'm at one of the top teams. That's even more amazing. I'm able to do well. I'm better than Sebastian Vettel. That's even better. (laughs) He understands that despite specific things that go wrong because his life is imperfect, that generally speaking, his life is quite good. And he's one of the few drivers that really shows fans and staff and everyone else around that that that's how he feels and that's how we think everyone should feel. In some ways, that's not asking much of the drivers to be happy about what they're doing. But because it's so rare, it stands out. Yeah, it's it's interesting. You know, it's like everyone's got sort of their personality and their driver personality and the professional side of things or whatever. And he just seems like the most... You know, close to like a lot of how we, you know, we're just enthusiastic about, you know, cars and racing and driving and so on. So it's like, man, if I somehow could just take part in an F1 race, man, I'd be smiling all up. Yeah. This is amazing. And it's like, that's Dan Ricardo. So although we can't get too far ahead of ourselves, Dan Ricardo really is a close second to feeling this way to Kimi Raikkonen. Yeah. Who always shows he's, he's so very well out there how lucky he feels. Yeah. And just anyway, so, um, so it was, of course, this problem, this braking problem for Hamilton, which ended his race, which he says was because he was chasing uh, Rosberg, you know, because he had to, it wasn't just, you know, it, first of all, wasn't in clean air and getting, you know, getting the cooling and whatever to, to it as part of it. But it's d- definitely a difference in terms of how you can attack corners, where you have to slow down, how you have to react to the guy right in front of you, because there was basically no gap between them. I mean, you know, in, in practice, of course, sometimes it's just over a second, sometimes it's under, but as we know, you can't run nose to tail you can't run a two-tenths difference in time over the course of multiple laps it just doesn't work physically with where the cars are and where you're trying to see and make braking points and so on so naturally if if someone's being held up um you know and it did seem like hamilton could have gone faster if if he had been able to get around um 
you know, it was basically that the lead gap that we had was sort of this right around a second, sometimes a little bit more, sometimes less, sometimes it would, you know, had a couple looks, but nothing super close. Well, uh, more than a couple looks. Right. Got, uh, had <laughs> uh, some interesting, uh, you know, yeah, you'd have a look and then, and then try too hard into a chicane, uh, have to straight line the chicane, whatever, but that, but that was sort of what, you know, seemed to uh, overwork the, especially the rear brakes on these cars. And what was really interesting was, um, I guess about two thirds of the way through the race and just before Hamilton's retirement was when, um, the both cars slowed down dramatically, like three seconds a lap. Um, but both Mercedes Which is really hugely dramatic, right? But but both in exactly the same time, um, and they sort of both backed off um, because you know I don't know what exactly was being said over the radio. If that was you know, it doesn't seem like if you tell Rosberg, hey, slow down a lot, that he would do that when he knows Hamilton is you know right all over him, right in the mirrors and so on. Right. So it's like they must have had a very similar. Either engineering knew just what to say to get both guys to fall in line right away, which would be amazing, or they had a very similar, you know, hey, these numbers, these temperature numbers on the brake pads are ridiculous, and they go to hit the brakes, and they both had issues, uh, you know, to really kind of uh, just see what was going on for themselves. Um, but then, of course, um, you know, Rosberg was able to continue, and yeah, at a much reduced pace, and Ricardo got around him, um, but uh, but no one else did, and he didn't have to, have to retire. Hamilton, on the other hand, just really looked like was running out of brakes and was able to get back to the pits, but uh, just yeah, barely. He showed that, and I think it's important. it's important to, if you want to believe nothing else, believe uh, the tone of voice in Rosberg's radio messages. Rosberg was definitely clearly concerned about his brakes the engineers even in response to him were much more frantic than usual usually the driver being emotional pent up sounding angry or nervous or frightened on the phone and i don't mean like i'm so scared i mean like what's going on talk to me explain this to me right and the engineers are always very even keeled okay the car is doing this so you need to do that this time round, the engineer's response to Rosberg was even, hey, just dial the brakes back. That's all we can tell you. Hey, there's definitely a problem. Do this. The engineers were also in a higher state of concern. And it was just a very tense couple of hours for them as a whole. And it is fascinating to me, uh, you know, Hamilton didn't blame Rosberg, but blamed being behind Rosberg for the reason why his brakes failed altogether versus Rosberg's being being able to hold on for the event. I have a, I, I, I believe that to a certain extent, but I have a hard time believing that completely. Maybe Hamilton Hamilton's use of the brakes tends to be a little bit harder than Rosberg's. Maybe Hamilton's problem with the uh, i'm going to say this incorrectly the m k u k no m g u k m g u k because it's the m g u kinetic right and that hamilton's problem was slightly worse than rossberg's fact of the matter is a formula one car weighs with the driver in it we're still we're heavier than we used to be but we're still under i'm about we're still under 1400 pounds it's a very light car with a lot of braking power. It shouldn't fail. It's just, you know, there was a main problem. So Hamilton's could have just been worse than Rosberg's. Right. So they both had the power unit failure, um, and that's you know the, the the units that switch power from the battery to the kinetic motor generator. That's that motor generator unit MGU K for kinetic. 
Um, so basically, they both Mercedes apparently right about the same time, um, you know, exactly the same time. I mean, you know, it's sort of weird how that happened. Um, yes. they, you know, so basically 160 horsepower down, um, leaving just the, you know, regular internal combustion engine. Um, so they're about 600 horsepower. Yeah, because there's the MGU. H, which is the motor, gener- motor generating unit for heat, and that's connected to um, supplementing. That supplements heat from the turbocharger to charge the battery, but yeah. doesn't directly drive the car right. directly. Right. Correct. So, so <laughs> right. So, this basically the batteries weren't being charged, or weren't being charged enough to to use any power um, to to get enough use, you know, useful power. Um, okay. So. Anyway, so then there is, uh, so it's a combination. Of course, the, the braking and the kinetic energy recovery—that's all—that's all linked together. I mean, that's all part of one system. So if, if that unit's not charging and not applying load across that, then that, that it does change the dynamic of your braking. And of course, that's what they're trying to deal with with balancing out, uh, you know, this, this braking by wire that Absolutely. they're talking that about. Absolutely, pro- to... that provides some of the torque to decelerate the car. Right. Yeah. So, exactly right. So and that's so that's what they're you know trying to balance out. And if you know if one system starts failing, you wouldn't think that oh my power unit that's going to mess with my braking, but it does now. Very much <laughs> the so. way these systems are. So I, I've I know this from testing the Tesla Model S and other hybrid cars. Um, the way Tesla does it, uh, this is a very much an aside, but it's apropos to the topic. Is quite clever. Tesla has. No connection between their braking system and uh, uh, battery recharging through uh, generation uh, generators. What they do is when you lift completely off the throttle, you get, I think it's three-tenths of a G of deceleration just from the motor um, uh, counteracting the wheels decelerating, and that's how they charge the batteries. And then when you hit the brakes, that's a separate deal altogether. On most hybrids, and including the Formula One cars, when you hit the brakes, part of the braking is occurring from the friction of the pad hitting the rotor and all the usual deal of how brakes work. But the other part of it is that motor um, spinning down the wheel. It's taking away that um, kinetic energy. So if that part fails, all of a sudden a chunk of the braking system that they designed into the car is gone. Right. So it's just like saying that, oh, you used to have, you know, let's just say 14-inch rotors. Now you have 11-inch rotors. That's kind of a similar effect in a way. Right. And, of course, every everybody is trying to save weight wherever they can. So, um, you know, as soon as they say, hey, what, what do we need? What's the lightest possible component we can use to get enough braking when all these systems are working? So when that goes away, then all of a sudden that's what is enough to burn up, in this case, Hamilton's rear brakes and, and Rosberg's to a slightly lesser extent. Um, is to say, hey, now now we've got brakes that are just undersized for what we're asking them to do. So exactly. he had to then dial his brake bias to put a lot more brake on the front and then drive much more carefully and, and you know, coast before corners so he didn't carry as much speed and so on. So it's, you know, a, a knock-on effect. So a combination of all these things uh, would have led to Hamilton's failure. And uh, so really thinking that, okay, not only is Rosberg down on power and down on brakes in a circuit that is not just, but basically um, straight lines of Two chicanes. most important elements. Right. Yeah. Well done, Rosberg, to hold on to that. And, and, you know, yeah, obviously he didn't have much. Well, I mean, he did have a nice lead to work from from the start. You know, they were able to, to get, you know, get out a sizable lead at the beginning um, after the safety car period. But uh, so, you know, that obviously helped. 
but uh, you know, well done to sort of manage that. That must not have been diff- must not have been easy. And that's typically something we look at from somebody like Alonzo, where it's like, hey, you're driving a car that's got several problems with it, uh, but are still able to not just pull over and give up, um, but also really still sometimes you know make points happen and, and so on. So to come second with a car that's down on power and down on brakes when that's all you need is uh, you know really well done for him there. And also speaks to how much of an advantage they had going into it, which speaks to how truly remarkably fast that Mercedes is really to have that level of problem and still be able to compete at the front. Don't forget that it was two laps until the end of the race when Rosberg lost the lead. So Rosberg was leading the race with this right. problem for most of the race. Um, it's, it's really quite outstanding in several ways. The other part of it though, that, I really want to talk about Ricardo and how great his victory was, was, but we have to talk about what happened to Sergio Perez and Felipe Massa. Yeah. What happened to them? Well, at first glance, it looked like Felipe Massa turned into Sergio Perez entering turn one. This en- on the final lap. On the final lap. Entering turn one at very high speed. They, I think the last we heard was they touched each other at a close to 160 miles an hour. Mm-hmm. But upon further review, and uh, in actuality where the penalties ended up going, uh, Sergio Perez was drifting towards the far right of the track, which would be where you'd expect someone to go to make the left-hand corner, but then started tracking back out towards mid-track as Felipe Massa was coming alongside. So I would say rightly so, Sergio Perez got a penalty for causing this collision. And sometimes you see these causing a collision penalties and it's kind of a fender bender in F1, in the F1 world anyway. But this turned into a pretty heavy accident for both of them. Right. And uh, heavier still for Felipe Massa. So... Five-spot grid penalty for the next race, that's a shame for Perez, but the vast majority is thinking, well, thank goodness they came out of this uninjured. Big hit. Right. And, you know, just to the latest we've seen, and probably as you listen to this, you may have seen more, um, is that both of them were checked out at the hospital and released, and, this, you know, doctors say that they're okay, not, you know, lasting effects and long-term stuff, who knows, but in terms of just they are both checked out, you know, People that know way more about this stuff than, than you know than we do uh, looked at them and determined, yep, these guys are good to go and uh, they're okay. So, um, you know, here's hoping that's the end of the story for that and that they'll, they'll both move on and it's all good and I uh, won't hear anything later um, to uh, to think that there's any you know longer term injuries, or whatever. But yeah, it is. It, it's tough. I mean, you know, because it's this isn't clearly Checo Perez didn't benefit from this. Um, from this move. So it's not like, oh, he can't, don't let him get away with this again. You know, it's not like if he looked at it and would go, oh, yeah, I'd do that again next time. It's like, he no. He certainly didn't do that on purpose. Right. Yeah. Um, so it was just kind of, I guess it's a, you know, be more aware of what's in your mirrors before making a move to get around other traffic and whatever. But it was um, really kind of wild. And also how close they came to taking out Vettel as well. I mean, he, Vettel's car was, you know, basically went right between the two, uh, where Checo Perez went off to the right um, and Massa's car went around to the left and he could have came right in front of Vettel's car. I mean, the onboard from Vettel's camera is, is kind of incredible how close 
um, how close, you know, Moss's Williams just slides way across from left to right, uh, across yeah. right in front of his car. And I think Vettel said he did see him just at sort of the last second, so sort of was at least aware that he was coming and either, you know, slowed down a little bit or changed his line slightly or whatever. But uh, it, uh, you know, anyway. Uh, Vettel got lucky. He got he got very lucky and, yes. uh, and and went on. I mean, that would have been amazing if that took a Vettel out um, to how what that would mean for the championship and so on with Daniel Ricciardo winning, getting maximum points, and then if Vettel didn't get anything and whatever. But um, so what that meant was that there were only 10 cars really that finished the race um, in, in this race. Is it that because few? Checo was 11th, Massa 12th, and then, well, Adrian Sutil, I guess, did finish. Oh, uh, he was a lap down. Goodness. Okay. If he had, if he had held on, if he, you know, if he were still on the lead lap, he would have gone through uh, before that, before, you know, that, that accident and whatever. Um, he could have gotten up to 11th spot, but, you know, who knows, you wow. know, whatever. But, uh, yeah, that, it's that kind of wild because Kimi first. in 10th um, was, uh, was, you know, behind him there and, uh, and so on. And, you know, it was the last of the cars to get through before uh, all hell broke loose there. Because um, well, Gutierrez was was classified as six laps down, but he had retired, I think. Then I he, he was, he was out of the car. Absolutely, he's not listed as retired, but yeah, he was definitely he had hopped out of the car and walked to the garage. So that seems like <laughs> retired to me. So I think we we got to give uh, Ricardo his due, but before we stop talking about this, general, we also have to talk about a further calamity. There was the more laughable comedy of. Um, mistakes that happened at the first lap and then this more horrific sad one that happened on the last lap that uh, fortunately had it's not horrific they're all okay it was Don't horrific make this it would nah it was horrific upon first sight and we fortunately learned later on that it turned out to be not so bad at all I don't want to, if somebody turns into our podcast at 28 and a half minutes in and here's something about a horrific crash to them to get the wrong idea. Everybody's okay, folks. Just don't I worry. Would argue that it's quite rare that someone turns into our podcast at 28 and a half minutes. But in case I'm they do. I'm not saying impossible. Well, either way. Anyway. Um, I did, and, okay, so the Marusha crash wasn't laughable. I mean, it's unfortunate for these guys, especially after just getting their first points and all that. I wasn't like, ha ha, look at you guys, you suck. I don't mean it in a ha ha kind of sense, but I mean it in a that was. A silly mistake that turned into a worst case scenario. This, the accident we just talked about with Sergio and Massa, was a tiny error of judgment that turned into a bad situation. That fortunately turned out to go um, go down a fortunate path after the accident. So that's that's where we're we're, we're getting into a uh, nomenclature war here a little bit. <laughs> My favorite kind, Daniel Ricardo was aggressive, strong throughout this entire race, and was smart to wait to really make a move on Nico Rosberg until he knew he could complete it. And he made a convincing and decisive pass that instantly turned into a solid lead in the race. And then on top of that, as it happened, the last lap was under yellow. And he ended up winning right. very but, comfortably. But he wasn't under threat. I mean, it wasn't like, oh, he only just won because of the safety car. No, this was separate from that. He exactly had made the right. pass. It had happened. And then after, after a while, then it was like, okay, now everybody's going to slow down. It was technically safety car conditions um, and, and so on. But, yeah, it was very, very well done um, for, for Ricardo to, you know, to make that happen. Uh, I saw a tweet from Mark Weber just being like, hey, well done, man. You know, awesome job. Your first of many and so on. I mean, he's got to be... Uh, you know, I got to be, you know, I think he said chuffed to bits or whatever. His, I wouldn't be surprised tweet. if Mark Weber said, hey, I hope it's first of nine or less. Because didn't Mark have ten? I don't remember the number exactly. But 
Uh, I'm kidding, by the way. Yeah, it, it was a brilliant race. Daniel Ricciardo has shown as a, I'm going to say, a Red Bull racing rookie, not a rookie, period, that he is quite capable and that Red Bull made the right decision to put him in the car. I'm, obviously this is all speculation, I'm very happy to think that Ricardo is doing better than Raikkonen would have done had he had the Red Bull seat. Yeah. He is clearly doing better than Vettel, and I think that this shows that Vettel is a phenomenal driver, but also benefited from having a great relationship with the Red Bull team. And his name's escaping me at the moment, but Christian Horner's boss, kind of the guy in between uh, Dieter Mavischitz and uh, Christian Horner. There's an in-between. Marco Helmet. Marco Helmet. Vettel's close relationship with Marco allowed him to go through the Red Bull, uh, Red Bull uh, sponsorship to get to Formula One, and then once he got to the full-on Red Bull racing team, really developed the car around him. And now that they've had to take a very different approach to their racing car and had to give up certain details that Vettel had grown accustomed to, Ricardo is dealing with that better than Vettel is. You know, that's only significant because we're just off the heels of Sebastian Vettel winning four championships in a row. Right. And as a potentially related note, um, Adrian Newey has said he's stepping down from day-to-day activities with Red Bull. He's signed a new Red Bull contract, so he's still connected with the company and with the team, but not going to be part of day-to-day. And as we talked about, you know, he was was in... uh, what uh, Silverstone for WEC, you know, not uh, not in China or you know for where the where F1 was happening at the time and so on. He seems like he's taking a step back and so on. Um, so that's you know you wonder if what's what is cause and what is effect. You know, did he already kind of uh, relinquish some of his control? Or did he lose some of the top guys where he had some crazy idea and then he had you know really good you know people around him to help implement that? And if he lost some of that because of you know everyone's trying to hire from the best teams and move around, so sure. you had a lot of people moving around, um, or if they gave it their all, but then it just turns out that this year's car just is not as good as they hoped. If then, you know, if that's a reaction to that, um, it's a little bit hard to say because sometimes these things take time for, you know, contracts to happen and decisions to be made and certainly for us to find out about them as normal fans of the sport. Exactly. So either way, I think that may be telling to see that Adrian Newey is not going to be part of the day-to-day operations. Um, you know, you wonder how that may change the, you know, Ricardo Vettel Red Bull dynamic a little bit, you know, with the team. I mean, Ricardo is the number one driver at Red Bull right now by virtue of the fact that he's got a lot more points. And he's now got a lot more points, you know, with, uh, I mean, Vettel, you know, keeping points and stuff going there. But um, <laughs> Vettel has 60 points in the championship and Ricardo has 79. You know, it's not, a, that that's, you know, not a, certainly a race win from Vettel would take him up top or whatever. But that is a, uh, it's not just a, a point or two now. I mean, that is a, a proper lead. And, uh, you know, I'm sure he's it's happy It's a to... proper lead in the championship that has been sustained the right. last three races. And, you know, of course, they it's, it's still Rosberg out front with 140 points, Hamilton with 118, so that's a pretty big step back, although not quite 25 points yet. Um, Ricardo with 79 points. I mean, that is a pretty big jump back from Hamilton. Um, but now that's, you know, Alonso with 69, Vettel with 60 points, and Hulkenberg with 57 right down from there. And then you fall back, and then it's Jensen Button and, and Botas, Magnussen, Checo Perez, and so on. But... Uh, you know, really, really well done for Ricardo, and 
you know, Hamilton's got to be uh, got to be frustrated, but I'm sure you know we'll we'll oh. do his best to come back. You know, at least this isn't like you know his teammate crashed him out or something. I mean, it was it was, you know, they both had the same car failure. And looking at it, there's a good technical analysis from uh, Craig Scarborough, Scarbs F1, uh, written for Autosport about the Mercedes failures. Um, and he noted that the, both cases, it was right after their pit lapse. So it does seem to be something with heat um, and heat soaked while the cars were stopped. Um, uh. That right after that, you know, the, the electronics may have actually died, you know, during the, uh, during, the pit, during the pit stop while the cars are stopped. There's no airflow around things. And then... If by the time they start to get back up to speed and start to try to recharge the uh, curves and you know recharge the batteries, then they realize, wait, hold on, this isn't working, and then they were down on power from that lap and so on. So that seems to be the the common link was that they pitted one lap after another, and then uh, you know it did uh, go you know all went wrong from there. So real quickly, it's clear that uh, Nico Rosberg has the most championship points, but uh, I think some would argue that Fernando Alonso has the best championship points. Um, another person that. Very quietly did very well. Jensen Button. We have a McLaren Mercedes in the top five. We saw very little of him, but that's 12 points. That moves him up. He is now seventh in the championship, and that potentially breathes a little life into McLaren Mercedes as we get into, as we go back to Europe, where it's going to be more likely to see more upgrades put on cars. And it'll be very interesting to see if McLaren can start edging towards the front again. Right. And, of course, with um, Massa's failure right at the end, uh, you know, that did definitely made a, a big impact for Williams' team points and so on. I mean, Williams is still behind McLaren in the championship. I would have thought just if you'd asked me who's ahead, I would have thought Williams based on their, their, their pace and so well, on. They but were they... tied in points and McLaren had the better result. Now McLaren leads in points out right so it's 66 points for mclaren to 58 for williams so it's still very close but obviously 12 points at that part of the field is a huge difference and then just behind them is str who only has 12 points for the whole year so far so it's um you know definitely a good day for for button and so on for that part of the championship i mean it's a bit um yeah they're they're behind force india ferrari red bull and of course mercedes but um you know definitely a, a solid performance um i you know it doesn't seem like they're gonna they're gonna turn it around and suddenly be challenging mercedes or anything like that but at least to you know to keep things going and keep things interesting and not see mclaren just sort of fall off a cliff uh, performance wise that is uh that is a good thing to see agreed and once again we saw the force india cars uh they weren't as strong in qualifying as some might wish they were however again race pace nico hulkenberg was able to keep that car up in fifth place and of course uh Sergio Perez was fighting, uh, at one point he was edging towards the lead, but definitely uh, fighting to be on the podium, and uh, obviously that ended on the last lap. <laughs> kind of went wrong. But, you know, again, we have Force India's, Force India took both Williams and Force India, but Force India, I think, had the most extreme example of taking a very different approach with pitch strategy. They stayed out on their super soft tires much longer than... Um, a lot of other guys. Although now that I think about it, maybe Massa was the guy out there the longest before his first pit stop. I think, yeah, both Force Indias were doing one stops and just trying to really, you know, get clever with what they're doing with, you know, making the best of a bad qualifying and so on and try to try to make it happen. And so, they were quite successful at it. Right. So, uh, yeah, it's, you know, it all, it all came together. But so, I mean, the crash at the end kind of just changed the tone of watching it. But even, you know, that run-up to the end, you know, you see the Mercedes being almost invincible this season. So to see 
okay, all of a sudden they started slowing down and then Lewis had to retire. All of a sudden it's like, well, hold on. You know, the race really kind of re-energized, which is a little bit sad, I guess, if all you're hoping for is that, you know, the Mercedes have a problem and then the race gets interesting. But there was, you know, there was plenty to watch. And then to see Ricardo come through and, you know, and come up with the win. Um, yeah, Vettel on the podium, I'm sure he's happy about that. But, you know, it's, uh, uh, you know, it's been so long since we haven't heard a German anthem on the podium, you know, because <laughs> it's either been a Mercedes or it's been Vettel. So to hear the Australian and then Austrian um, anthems and, and not German and to, you know, have something different there, whatever, was was very cool. I think, you know, like you say, Ricardo seems almost universally liked. And, uh, and you know, it's just uh, really cool for him to see that, uh, to, for that to go well. So, um Definitely, you know, really happy on that side of things. And then now that we hear, we hear that, uh, you know, Massa and, and Checo are okay, then it's, you, you know, you don't kind of have to worry about it. But still, it's kind of like just, ah, you know, it's crazy. Um, it's just sort of emotional roller coaster of, of crazy crashes and what's going on and how that affects everything. And so now we're sort of parsing through that. And, uh, and you know, yeah, like we say, hopefully that uh, everything's, everything's, you know, actually is fine for both of them and they go on happily. So starting a path down a reverse chrono- excuse me in a reverse chronological order here slightly we're going to backtrack to the first lap of the race and the first two cars to retire uh Jules Bianchi and Max Chilton wow that was an unfortunate unfortunate confluence of circumstances Max Chilton lost control of his car super drift style in turn three and as he was trying desperately to recover the car to not just straight hit the wall trying to get through turn four which on the outside on the far right hand side is just wall he collects his teammate Jules Bianchi who one race prior scored Marusha's first points ever in Formula One Grand Prix racing. That is terribly unfortunate. So he took himself out. He took his teammate out. And no one was hurt, thankfully. It was fairly low, fairly low impact, certainly compared to the end of the race. Here's what I find a bit ironic. He's actually classified ahead of Jules Bianchi in the results. I don't know if it really matters. They're both listed as retired. But I just well, it may just ironic. be by grid order because they ended at the same time. Because Chilton apparently did line up 18th and Jules 19th, so maybe this they just true. go with that. Um, and then yeah, we didn't see much of the caterims. I mean, one uh, we had what uh, Marcus Ericsson retire on lap seven, and then Kobayashi on lap 23. We did see uh, you know just just minor crashes and little things. Pastor Maldonado made it 21 laps before the car gave up on him. Doesn't seem to be his fault this time, but just the car. Didn't, didn't last. Neither did Grosjean's, who lasted 59 laps. I Just think it was Pastor's fault for selecting number 13, yeah. uh, being superstitious and all. Explain to me the post-race debriefing in the Marusha uh, paddock, though. I mean, just how do you explain to your boss, well, there was some oversteer... And then there was this guy who's sitting right there, and he was kind of in the way of my oversteer. So what are you going to do? I just, I, to say, boy, my face is red, talk about understatements. I mean, Canada always delivers great racing, but this, this is great racing and fascinating topics. Because how, how do you explain all these things? And as a driver, 
as a driver who is still young, still trying to make a name in Formula One, how do you explain this? I've, I, I, I feel like this might be not immediately so, but this is career altering for the negative. For Chilton? Yes. Yeah, well, I mean, obviously the team knows what they're doing here and that this is racing and sometimes crap happens, shall we say, being family show that we are. Uh, bad Quite. things, you know, sometimes just it, it goes wrong and it's not, uh, you know, I mean, they, they would be able to look at some of the telemetry and so on and see um, if there is, I mean, obviously it's a mistake because he didn't mean to do that. But just to look at that and say, wow, you, what you did was really dumb because the way you reacted to it was completely incorrect and goes against what we've talked about or what your training is or what any normal driver should do. Or maybe they look at it and go, yeah, that really sucks. You know, that you, this happened, obviously you try to correct it and it just, the timing and where everybody was just happened to be what it was. You know, maybe it's not, you know, so bad. I mean, you know, it's not like they, they go to talk to Max and Max is like, oh, I shouldn't take out my teammate. I thought that was a good thing to do. You know, they're not telling him new information. And obviously he, he's going to go there, you know, go knowing that, you know, oh, this isn't the way to, you know, this isn't the way to bring success to our team. So, uh, you know, it's not like they, you know, they need to go to the bosses to tell him that. But, um, yeah, I, I wonder to what length they look through and really kind of analyze what happened. I mean, I guess if they have the whole race debrief and that's their whole race is about 30 seconds long, then maybe they could look at exactly Quite what happened. Quite literally if... less than one lap. I mean, I, I'm pretty sure, I'm not absolutely positive, but I'm pretty sure it was turns three and four. Yeah. So, okay. They got through a couple corners okay, but right. then it started going wrong. Yeah, and then it went way wrong all at once. So, And this this had nothing to do with, uh, you know, the car having a problem. This was the driver in the car having a problem, at least as far as we know. Right. So, yeah, that is that is an unfortunate day for Marussia. Um, but, hey, you know, I guess in, in, in their, you know, not in their defense or whatever, but uh, still Sauber has not scored any points. Uh, still um, Caterham not scored any points and is still way off. You know, they, they both made it through that, but then they both had car failures. And Marussia, for all we know, um, could have, you know, the, the car may have been set up pretty well to, to last for a while, not that it matters now. But, uh, you know, I guess for, for Marussia as a team, um, it's like, Obviously, this sucks. They didn't get any points, but they're used to that. Um, they still have their points on the board. <laughs> and if, if it had that. been the case that if they were Poor both guys. you know, in front of um, you know, the caterings and one of the caterings got through and got two points or even three points, and that put them, that would be a much more direct, hey, because you crashed, Chilton, now we are no longer you know, ten, you know, ninth in the championship. You know, at least they're still where they were in terms of championship points, um, which is going to be the biggest thing for them to be looking out for is just to maintain that, uh, the small gap that it is of two points over two other teams. And, uh, and basically to, to not drop to 11th. If they're 9th, um, that's awesome for them. If they're 10th, that's okay. 11th is what they really want to avoid. So um, in the grand scheme of things, you know, I guess it could have been worse. Could have, you know, if, well, if, if a it caterham... Definitely, it definitely could have been worse. If caterham won the race, you know, then that would be... <laughs> it could have been worse if they were injured or if, like you said, you know, caterham scored their first points ever or Sauber for, scored their first points of the year. Right. But this, for Max Chilton specifically, this was quite close to worst-case scenario. Uh, One other thing, this is also the first time that we've seen from the Mercedes since Australia that there was weaknesses in the car itself, that the car suffered a problem and they had to deal with that problem. This time it wasn't in digital it works now it doesn't work retire the car but a oh boy we weaken the car but it still 
is still, you know, going along. Mm-hmm. Is Canada just inherently a place that is harder on Formula One cars than other, or is this coincidence? Yeah, I think, I mean, I think the fact that we had so few cars retiring, yes, a couple of them were crashes. I mean, four of them, right, with the Marushas together and obviously uh, Checo and, and Massa. Um, but a lot of other retirements that aren't listed as specific failures, just as kind of, we don't know, but they retired. You know, the Lotuses, we don't actually know exactly what the deal is. The Sauber, uh, Gutierrez, I mean, Sutil did finish the race a lap down, but Gutierrez hopping out of his car, I don't know exactly. We could look through the, the stories to see what that was. Uh, both caterums uh, and so on. You know, it does seem like these are tough. And then, of course, Hamilton's failure as a combination of the car and the track and the way it all came together. Yeah. Um, it does seem like this this track is, is you know, like that. Um, of course, this is a big flyaway. It's you know one of the closer ones to us, the closest race to us. It is, but uh, uh, but still, for them, there's uh, you know a long way from home and coming just off of um, you know their their race from Monaco and so on. So they may not have um, all the you know everything that they that they normally would in terms of developments and moving forward and spare wings and, and pieces and whatever to, to to try different things. So uh, there may be a little bit of it to that. But um, I guess the bottom line for me is that. Yet again, you know, Canada has given us really interesting racing, you know, separate from what are the powertrains and what are the tires and so on. Like just one way or another, the way the track is, the way, uh, you know, the, just the, the, the city around it and the, the, the atmosphere and the whole thing, uh, the way drivers get excited about it and so on. We're kind of in this nice middle kind of prime time, June, summertime, F1, you know, we've just had Monaco. That's always cool. And, you know, Spain and so on. Um, and, and then now we're going to go on to a return of an old circuit but new for you know the modern you know recent formula one to austria in two weeks time and after that to england we're kind of in like prime f1 season here and it's very much so that canada slots into that especially for us being uh, a local one and poutine is delicious as a uh, canadian dish quite um and and as a quick aside you know montreal is less than half as far away as austin right why don't we go to the canadian grand prix like every year we really should next year um we'll do that right and so to that to that end though you know like, like we mentioned I, I've been there once and really really loved it and would definitely go back um, and I, I don't think I've never heard anyone who's like yeah I went to the Montreal you know the Canadian Grand Prix in Montreal didn't really like it didn't like the city whatever it's just the city gets all into it everybody really seems to like it and uh, and to that point we have uh, quite a bit of content from Jamie Price who was there in attendance uh, as we last heard from him he was washing his clothes uh, to get the uh, the champagne off of them from Monaco <laughs> I think they've been re-champagned looking at one of his shots from after the race um, but he sent us some audio from uh this is sunday morning so before uh, the race had happened and all that before he was soaked in champagne and uh with some questions about the circuit and what he was doing and and how he likes it and so on so uh, unless you've got anything else to add for the moment we can uh, hand it over to jamie i think the one thing i'd like to add is that this is one of my favorite races on the calendar every year delivers great racing this is one of your favorite uh, races on the calendar and i think uh we're going to hear from Jamie that he agrees. Good morning, Robin and Jim. It is Jamie Price reporting to you from the Grand Prix of Montreal paddock. Um, it is a stunning day here and couldn't really have better weather, honestly, um, just walking into the paddock right now. It's been a really cool week here. We had kind of not, we didn't have true rain per se on, uh, on Friday, but it was just a little cloudy at times. Um, ended up being really nice toward the end of the day but you know we can't change these things it's been really really good watching the cars around here uh it's it's a very unique track it is you know as you said robin it's just a lot of straights and chicanes 
but you know there's there's some really interesting turns too a lot of heavy braking and then a lot of you know hard acceleration um as as you kind of walk around the track it's it's really beautiful actually it's one of my favorites it's one of the best out there really there's nothing quite like it <clears throat> we've all kind of unanimously agreed that it's also one of the best races for sheer atmosphere from the fans and for us um it's just a really 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 good race Montreal's a really fun city and the whole the whole just weekend experience is very unique and very special um so we've we've all really enjoyed it and it's always good to come back year after year you know it's great nightlife and in Montreal it's close to the actual city which you can't always say about all the races some of them are quite a ways out of town um from any major fan area uh and you know not all of them have good bars and restaurants you're kind of, sometimes you can be really stuck out in the in just the middle of nowhere um but Montreal we all stay in Montreal um I'm actually sleeping on a couch in a, a journalist's apartment so living the glamorous life wearing tarjay and you know all my monaco garb but it's a, it is a really really good race um but the track I love shooting it there's trees there's forests there's you know you can get pretty really close to the cars um I was down at the Wall of Champions yesterday and I honestly tell you what that is probably one of the most exhilarating scary exciting uh nerve-wracking and difficult corners to shoot that I've ever been at and I was I was there last year and and you just forget how violent the, the the cars are as they come around the turn um and yeah you're wearing earplugs jim and and you do need it cuz they come past you just you know full full power but these are things that the average fan cannot experience but i get to enjoy it um and take pictures of it the cars come around that last that last turn and just come straight at the wall and you're they're just brushing tires like jensen button came by yesterday and you know paint chips flew up all over me that's how close they get it's really 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 scary and you're there's a little photo hole if you if you watch closely enough on TV you can see it but there's a little photo hole right as they come um straight at the wall it's basically a driver escape route but they let us you know climb in there and and use it as a photo hole uh, but you're the ground is actually above the track so it's a raised area to shoot and we'll be standing there the cars coming at you and the catch fence you can lean out over the catch fence and the cars basically go underneath of you so i don't know if that makes sense but it is really scary to stand there cuz the air they are not messing around um but some of my other favorite turns you go back into the woods and there's just a lot you can do with the trees you can pan through the trees there's you know in the afternoon especially you'll get dappled light kind of coming through the forest and it's just a really really special place to be um and again I hate that you can't really the fans can't really watch this area of the track it's very closed off it's really only marshals and photographers but other than that it is a really beautiful place to watch from as far as uh who's been on form this weekend and who hasn't I think it's good to see Alonso putting in some quick times in practice but it's never really going to be anybody but a Mercedes as we've said all year um Nico did put in the faster lap but I I still think that Hamilton is is the faster driver and outright speed and he loves this track. I 
if it's if it's me asking, you know, who it's going to be today at the end of the day, staying on the top step, I think it's going to be Hamilton. Um, not that Nico is not capable, and, and he surely will be um, and can be in, in that fantastic Mercedes, but I just think Hamilton's looked really chilled out all weekend. I mean, from, from Thursday press conference, he just looked very happy and content and smiling and um, just looks very, ca- like, just calm. Um, Nico does too, to be honest, but Hamilton wears his heart on his sleeve, and when he's calm and collected, he usually drives well. If he kind of comes to the track in a bad mood, then it doesn't always translate into a really good weekend for him. Um, But the Mercedes are just just outright faster than everybody. I was standing, there's one particular corner, it's the second chicane, so it'd be turns, uh, I guess, three and four, Um, so pretty early in, in this sector. And the, during qualifying, I was standing there watching everybody as they came through. <coughs> and Mercedes, they're, they're just all over the curbs. They just have such better handling. No one else was attacking it like they were. Um, even coming out of the, you know, the last turn toward the Wall of Champions, they just seem like they have the car much more under control Whereas Alonso and Raikkonen came out of the last turn heading toward the Wall of Champions, and I swear to you, every single time I thought there was going to be a car in the wall. It, it's, it's really scary to stand there and you know, watch. Those two, especially when they come past you, you're like just holding your breath, hoping that they don't plant it into the concrete right in front of you and send a shower of carbon fiber um, up in your face. But the Mercedes just seem to have... They have better engine power, they're faster on the straights, they they seem to be braking well, it doesn't look unstable under braking, you know, I saw a couple good lockups from both of them um, at various points this weekend, and especially into the hairpin at the, before the long back straightaway, but the Mercedes is just untouchable by anybody right now, and, you know, I think Red Bull seems to be the best of the rest. Uh, Ferrari's not really, didn't really show its pace in qualifying, but who knows what their race will end up being. Um, but the Williams, I think, has been a good surprise. So, too, has the Toro Rosso. You know, we're consistently seeing them in the top ten, and, you know, you kind of get to the Q3 of qualifying, and you're kind of watching who comes past, because, you know, at any racetrack, unless you're in front of a TV, you really don't see what's going on at the racetrack itself. And so, you know, I only I know, like, when Q2 ends, because the cars stop coming around, um, Really, you know, with with Q2, you don't see that the race has actually ended, um, or the the qualifying has ended, until the cars stop coming by, and then you know, all right, that's the end of Q2, and, and then the next time you see them out, you'll know who's in Q3. And you can you, you're standing there. I was standing out in the forest, and I'm kind of with some marshals, and but they're not speaking English, so I didn't bother asking, you know, what they were hearing over the radio because they have pretty good communication with each other. And so this car start coming out again, and you kind of count. It's like, oh, there's Williams, there's another Williams, there's a Mercedes, obviously, Ferrari, um, a McLaren, and then a Toro Rosso. So it's it is really interesting to see those guys kind of really consistently fighting for points. Disappointing not to see Force India up there um, since I work for them, but you know we had a, we had a good laugh at over a few drinks with their mechanics and (laughs) they were joking that they really have the best strategy today because they can do whatever they want with the tires and 
um, if they have a bad race, they can say that they didn't qualify well, and if they have a good race, they can you know be really optimistic about it. So we'll see what happens in the race, but it's it's going to be a Mercedes, and I think it'll be Hamilton if if I'm being asked at this moment on Sunday morning. So. Anyway, um, definitely one of those races that every fan should try and get to at some point. The classic Grand Prix cars were going around yesterday, and they've been doing a couple practice sessions. They've got cars from the 1980s and a couple from the 70s, and uh, I, I shot a few pictures of, of those cars, and just honestly, listening to those cars howl, it, was, it really you know, gives you tingles down your spine. They're really special, and they, they've got one of uh, Gilles Villeneuve's... Uh, old 1980s Ferraris, and it's being driven by a guy I don't know, um, but he has a replica Jill's helmet, so you know, when you're taking pictures of the guy, it's really cool, because it looks like you're just in a time machine. There's Jill's Villeneuve coming over a crest in, in his 1982 car. Um, it's just really cool to see, so i uh, really enjoyed shooting the classic Grand Prix cars, but definitely one of those one of those Grand Prix that every fan should get to. It's got great atmosphere. Montreal is a fantastic city. If I'm being completely honest, the women are like nothing else on earth. I've Every night we just kind of look around and stare at each other in disbelief how many good-looking women are walking by outside the restaurant, but um, it's been a really fun week, and uh, I look forward to talking to you guys next time. So we have two shows uh, from which our listeners have fed back, so to speak, um, with our double hitter for Monaco. Um, so the first one I posted, uh, part one of our Fun With Cars Monaco coverage is online and uh, on Facebook. Uh, we had people going, what, part one? There's going to be more than one? And uh, Craig hmm. the Kilt, uh, <laughs> I think Jamie and my fight myself, has sent Jim so much crap to play. It needs a separate show, which... Kind of is correct, although I wouldn't call it crap uh, from either of you guys. Uh, so yeah, we just uh, obviously had to uh, split that up. We had plenty to do, and then with uh, arranging two people's schedule is difficult enough. But then three people's schedule means that it's hard to have all the time to go through the complete show as you normally would. But especially when the third person is a cosmopolitan world traveler, right? And uh, as uh, that that shops at Target of all places, <laughs> as he says. Um, so uh, yeah, people people definitely uh, seem to, to like that. So uh, thank you for. Uh, uh, Tim Ecott uh, saying Fun With Cars is his normal go-to podcast for a Monday morning commute after a race, and uh, he, he uh, finds it interesting, and uh, we always appreciate that. And uh, and then Jim Helwig uh, had some comments on there as well um, about uh, the, the back and forth with Nico and Lewis. I think we've, we've covered that pretty well. Um, but uh, basically, uh, he ends that with, can't wait for Canada, bring it on. And I think, you know, hopefully he and, and, and the rest of us... And bring it on, they did. Right, they done brung it, uh, and, and it was, <laughs> yeah. Um, so... Then, you know, then follows up to uh, the second post. Jim Helwood continues, uh, you know, Jamie Price is living the dream. You know, basically, well done, Jamie. Uh, you know, keep up the great work and so on. Um, and, uh, yeah, the, uh, the, you know, and the Scott Christie. Uh, My guess is, though, that in dreams, the champagne is way better. That's, I, it's an assumption. I admit that fully. But I imagine in your dreams, when you're sprayed with champagne, it's like a lovely shower. That is also champagne. When in reality, it is not the case. Right. Scott Christie talks about, um, uh, he says, I, I don't know, part of his question doesn't make any sense. Um, but uh, also Jim mentioned uh, Lamar Radio, which is another fine podcast. Um, and, and they do, um, I guess they do Midweek Motorsport is like the podcast they put out. But I just mean in terms of the coverage of the race, you know, it's in terms of, you know, the uh, John Hindoff and the guys. 
um, you know, running the actual coverage, uh, having them involved in any kind of endurance race um, is, you know, is definitely just a plus just because of the, you know, we had a lot of comments today. Just we, we watched the race with a group of people. Um, and I think partly they dumb things down when it's on network TV as this race was. It was on, you know, Channel 4 NBC broadcast over the air to all of America, uh, not just cable channel. But uh, just partly it's the commentators, but partly it's just the camera shots. You know, so many shots of wives and girlfriends and of stands when there was, like, exciting stuff happening on track. So, anyway, I think some, you know, the Radio Le Mans guys, they don't handle the uh, video cut part of it, but just uh, the commentary, you know, saying the right stuff, asking the kind of questions we would want to know answers to. And it's, it's also, I mean, to be fair, an endurance race, you have a lot more downtime, a lot more time to see something interesting and say, oh, I wonder why the car is doing it like that. Walk down, find the guy who designed that car, and talk to him and say, hey, why is the car doing that? And then yeah. you can find that. So it's like it's a little different than Formula One, but definitely they uh, they do a great job of that. And, and so also, on. nothing is as restrictive as Formula One. It is right. easier to get access to these guys and talk to them, whereas Formula One, you know, it's very closed off and regulated and calculated of when and how different people talk to the media. Right. So... There's that. So there's that. Um, this race being on Eastern time zone, arguably the best time zone, <laughs> as it's been said. Um, hey, I mean, you've got New York City, you've got us, you've got Montreal, you've got, you know, all of the East Coast of the U.S., and there's probably some of the, you know, Western Mexico or whatever, Eastern Mexico. I don't Most know. Most of Florida? Yeah, probably like Chile might even be this. I don't know. Either way, good ooh, times. Uh, ooh, that's, that's fascinating. No, I wonder pretty, if the far west edge of South America no, is still I wouldn't think pretty so. Pretty far but, east. Yeah. Anyway. Good time zone, and this race happened to be on it. So we were tweeting live, and uh, those, of, uh, those of you who were taking part in that know who you are because you were taking part in that. But uh, lots of good times over on hash FW cars, and uh, we had you know comments from um, all, the, all the, the regulars. Uh, we've got uh, Ben Azuma, Colin Sato, uh, you know, Geek Girl F1 was in there, Lori Jordan, Ziggy, uh, you know, anyway, the, 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 the list goes on. But if you're not taking part in that, um, you know, definitely just check hash FW cars on Twitter every once in a while uh, because we post there and lots of other people uh, can contribute there. And what's fun about that is it's not just what you or I say, Robin. It's what, what anyone wants to share something. They can just exactly. add hash FW cars in their tweet and it shows up. So um, even if we aren't watching live, there are people who are and they can uh, just use that as a bit of a conversation point. Because hash F1 is, of course, the other one you could use um, or you can use both. But hash F1 is people all over the world in all kinds of different languages and, and it's sometimes a lot harder to follow because there's sort of, you know, hundreds of tweets per second going on and whatever. Hash FW cars is people that are on our kind of level and it's, it's good stuff. So, um, especially thank you to, uh, Andy Barnes posting a, uh, a still oh, shot from hey. Vettel, Vettel's onboard showing just how close boss it was going in front of him. Well, and, and Andy Barnes did have the quote of the day with, Hey Mercedes, why don't you try stopping and start, stopping and restarting your Mercedes? Hello IT. Have works. you tried turning it off and on again? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I was quite clever. Appreciated that. And, uh, you know, pick your stereotype of uh, IT person uh, making that voice, and it just gets even better. Exactly. So separate from Formula One, uh, there was a Detroit Grand Prix last weekend. Uh, I could not go. I was out of town and whatnot. But you, sir, were in attendance, and apparently so was Ron Kasky, um, who uh, – you know, went out there and uh, sent us a Facebook message about that. So as a quick sort of IndyCar slash general motorsport conversation aside. Well, he, um, he opens with uh, a conversation about sound and talked about... Oh, we'd gone this far without even talking. <laughs> we'd gone this far, but we must talk. Okay. He says, he says, he felt this, he agrees that this horse has already been beaten. 
He thinks it's a shame for the horse, but sound makes a big difference. We watched the Cadillac Series race, the Tudor GT Series race, which is the U.S. endurance racing, and the IndyCar race itself. The GT prototype cars were amazing. And he goes on to explain how fantastic those sound. And there are similarities, more similarities than there used to be, between the IndyCar sound and the Formula One sound. Because um, ahead of Formula One, IndyCar went to a turbocharged setup, which they had before, but it was a different form. Well, I'm getting ahead of myself. They had a turbocharged setup um, of Cosworth Motors back in the day. And then they went to a naturally aspirated V8 for a while. And then they went back to turbocharged V6s. I hope I'm getting that part right. But unlike Formula 1, I do believe theirs are 2.2 liters or 2.4, somewhere in there. Not the point. The point is the Indy cars certainly do not have the shriek that they used to have. They don't rev as high. They're not as loud. Whereas the... Two-door GT cars and the two-door endurance cars, they still have uh, naturally, naturally aspirated power and still make naturally aspirated glorious sounds. And that, when you're there live, does get noticed. And it is, it is something that we'll all get used to because it's not like sound is the only thing that makes racing. But it is a bit of a fawning over yesteryear glorious sound kind of a reminder. And it's even more telling when, as Ron points out, you're watching different series in the same day. And the quote-unquote lesser series makes a sound that uh, really, really gets you. Right. So he, he continues, uh, this is Ron in his note, um, I was of the impression that, hey, if the racing was just as good as better or better, who really cares if the sound is lessened? Really, though, dynamic sound made a big difference in the excitement factor between the Indy and GT cars. So, and that was, uh, I think, you know, Jamie and Craig's point from the last show as well, yeah. is not just, okay, for us on TV and for what is the technology and who's winning the championship and so on, but if you're going to pay the money, go to, you know, take out the family, go see, go get tickets and watch this race in person that you want to be wowed by it and, uh, and, and do so. Um, in terms of just another sort of F1 comparison, um, Ron continues, um, I did confirm my earlier thought about the massive difference in technology between F1 and Indy. Simply compare the steering wheels alone in F1 and Indy, and it's easy to see that F1 is the pinnacle of automotive technology. Mm-hmm. It's overkill to call the Indy cars glorified go-karts. That's not fair. However, I still felt that way. The only reason I feel like I can tolerate F1's decreased sound this year is that these F1 cars are the ultimate best things that the, that the best manufacturers on planet Earth can create given the current rules. I want to watch the world's best drivers push the world's best cars engineered by the world's best minds to their limits on the world's best tracks. Well, I'm not sure that we've quite hit that very last one. But yes, Ron's points are very valid there. And something to keep in mind here. All Formula One, all Indy cars, sorry, use a spec chassis. And that is something that uh, Formula One will be strongly opposed to until its last breath, I imagine. I hope. I mean, for me, just as a fan. A typical IndyCar budget these days is around $5 million, maybe approaching $10 million. IndyCar, I'm, uh, Formula One, the cheapest that they're spending, and that would be Caterham, Marusha, somewhere there. They're still spending at least $50 million. And That's that actually, is the bare bones basics. Yeah, and actually I wonder who is spending the least because it's not always the backmarkers. I mean, Caterham, you know, for a while there had some really big money behind with this type with GE and AirAsia and all these things. Like, 
you know, it's not always the case that who, he with the last the, the smallest budget. I mean, sometimes, uh, you know, you wonder if uh, who exactly it is, you know, if Lotus Renault, you know, they never got that money that was supposedly being wired internationally from Quantum and all that whole thing with at the end of last year. You know, you wonder what is their budget? I mean, yeah, they've got a, a, a bigger platform to start from. So even if they if they have a real small budget this year, they, it can drop them back. But it'll actually be an interesting figure to see um, who spends the least on Formula One and what do they get for it? Because it's not directly a correlation to spend the most, get the most, because I would think... Um, I would think Red Bull has, t- although I don't know Ferrari. You know, you don't. I would. I can't imagine it being anyone other than Ferrari. Frankly, right. having the best, having just the most money, and obviously they're not doing so well. So it's kind of interesting to see uh, where that where that fits in. And, that's and of a- course, McLaren is up there. Right. And yeah, that's true. I mean, right. And Mercedes, Mercedes has touted publicly, at least, that they are fairly lean with their budget, but fairly lean with their budget. Eh, you know, that is something to take with a grain of salt, and certainly. They, I think they even claimed 175 million or something like that. Yeah, it's still in the hundreds of millions. Right, and the you know of course the engine constructors can be lean with their budget in terms of running the car, but also if they're getting money from three other teams who buy their engines and then all that money goes back into engine development, that's not really a fair comparison to someone who's just spending that money to go get the engine. So anyway, there's a lot to it, but um, so and thank you for the comment, Ron. That was where we started with this. Was the it was the, uh, it was very lovely to get you know Ron sent us some edges a message and just had stuff to say and we really appreciated hearing his opinions it was great yeah and and he uh he closed by saying he vows to go to montreal next year and i think that is a, a good plan as well i mean I, I really like the detroit grand prix as an event i like that it's obviously it's our local thing and it is a cool track you know it's it's oh, not it, a street circuit it's it's on this island um it's a lot like albert park i guess and that it's, it's it's very much a street circuit in style right but it is on a park just like you say so it is uh it is quite close to a permanent racetrack in that sense. Right. Well, I guess not that different from the Ile de Notre Dame with Montreal, right? Very I mean, it's, it's an island in the middle of the river. You, you have limited access to it, which means the good news is they don't have to shut down lots of the city to make it work, so there's not so much opposition to the craziness. But it is still right next to, you know, the city of Detroit, and uh, and there is lots of cool stuff there, and uh, some not, cool, not so cool stuff too, but lots of cool stuff there. And the most current iteration of it is the brainchild of Roger Penske, who dabbled in Formula One, but uh, also was in Can-Am and obviously IndyCar. He's a brilliant, he's a brilliant guy. There's just no two ways about that one. So I, I, I wish, I don't know, I mean, I guess I'm glad to hear that the Tudor GT series, you know, the GTN prototype, the whole Tudor series is exciting and thrilling to watch and to see, you know, that we as, as fans living in the Detroit area can, you know, just go down to the weekend and, and, you know, watch the, uh, watch the race, take part in that and so on. And, uh, and and enjoy it is really cool that we have you know a race we can do that with because it was you know for a long time there wasn't a Detroit GP um, and the closest one would have been Mid Ohio or something or driving out to Toronto or something like that. Um, so I, I ooh we should drive out to Toronto though. Yeah. Mossport. Yeah. I've been there, but not for an actual race weekend. Hey, that oh, was an actual okay, race it was weekend. Actual, okay, <laughs> not a professional race week. I don't know. Well, top level. Anyway, we're we're uh, we're digressing. I'm sorry. We are, but. Um, I guess the bottom line is visit funwithcars.com um, where you can, <laughs> uh, you can comment on our posts. You can see links to our Twitter and Facebook feeds and so on. And certainly um, as, we, as we are in the prime time of Formula One here and certainly all the races that are on good time zones for us, uh, follow along on hash FWCars on Twitter. And, uh, and you know, certainly people are posting on the Facebook stuff as well. Facebook gets a little bit weird for real-time things, the way they sort comments, and it's hard to sort of follow stuff live. So we kind of do that stuff on Twitter. But uh, definitely it's fun. However you want to uh, take part, um, do so with us and, uh, and keep engaged. And we thank you, as always, for listening and for your thoughtful feedback. So 
we got to figure out how predictions shook out because it was a bit of a weird one this week. So as you know, I had had this brilliant strategy where I'm like, hey, I'm going to pick Rosberg Rosberg because everyone else is on this Hamilton train. And if something Hmm. goes wrong, they're all going to get hosed and I'm not. And that would have been brilliant for this race, but that is not what I did for this race. So I am a little bit sad about that because uh, several people uh, made much better calls than me. I was a typical Hamilton Hamilton. I think you were as well. And, as I have been for a while. Right. Uh, but uh, that, that did not pan out because of, of course, um, you know, didn't get pole position and then had this retirement uh, netting us lots and lots of points. So it's kind of interesting. We had nobody predicted Rosberg for pole and Ricardo for the win. We had... Uh, five people, sorry, four people predicting Hamilton Ricardo. So we did have four people predicting Ricardo victories, um, at least with the Hamilton uh, poll. And then Rosberg Rosberg, we had a bunch of people doing that. Um, actually, like ten people doing that, including our statistical model Damien, though, for a single point. And then lots of Hamilton Rosbergs and other various permutations down there. So you and I, sir, uh, came in fifty seventh, tied for fifty seventh place in the predictions this week with this Hamilton Hamilton prediction. Um, and I think there were probably about actually about 100 people um, out of the 159 that are playing uh, who <laughs> went Hamilton Hamilton. There were a lot of people, and all of us got 17 points. So in the overall season tally, of course, fewer points is better. We had a few people that were kicking around um, with zero points for a while and then one point and whatever. Now the best score, shout out to Mark Page, who has only seven points so far in the season, has not yet gotten hosed. And, uh, and is doing really well. We've got then a bunch wow. of people with eight points and on up from there. But wow, uh, well done, sir. Um, and that puts what did Mark Page predict for this round? Oh, no, I got to look through it. I don't know. Let's see. I, it's he fees seven points total. He definitely did not have Hamilton in his prediction. He had this Hamilton time Rosberg for two points. This ah, race. okay. So just uh, yeah, well done, sir. And. Uh, and this, so this puts me, I'm like 30-something, um, you know, it, it doesn't, you know, I could have been worse, I guess, but could have been, but, you know, I'm 48th ooh, in predictions now. Overall, Overall, I'm 107th. Well, I feel better after hearing that. Now, and Damien, <laughs> the computer statistical spreadsheet model, is 69th in predictions. Um, well, well, like Sebastian Vettel, I moved, was champion last year. Damien gained 45 spots this, on this race. I forgot this. If you mouse over the... With the Who gained 40 spots? Damien, the spreadsheet. Wow. Um, if you mouse over the uh, the... Your place in the full table. Our prediction stud is great that he comes up with this stuff. So um, last last year I was the predictions champion. Yeah. And unlike Sebastian Vettel, I am not going to whine or complain about the details. I'm going to own this on my own. I'm having a tougher year this year. Yeah. Simple as that. Yeah. I, do. I, I lost 15 places uh, this race uh, with my with my ham ham prediction. So that said, where are you going for the Austrian Grand Prix? You know. You're not going to believe this. I am going to stick with my prediction for Hamilton on pole and Hamilton to win the race. Because it is clear that Mercedes still has a strong advantage, even though Montreal showed that that advantage wasn't necessarily on the engine. In fact, quite the opposite. I think Austria is going to show a little bit more of the traditional Mercedes strengths. And I do think that some teams will be bringing some upgrades to the car, but I think one of those teams will be Mercedes. So I don't see any point in changing from Mercedes. And further, I think that Hamilton 
is not yet to the point where he's hurting himself with emotion that he can't perform. So he is going to want to put a stamp on it and very solidly get pole position and go on to win the race with ease. I think that is exactly what he's going to seek out and try to do. Mm, so looking at previous Austrian Grand Prix winners, last Austrian Grand Prix was in 2003, won by one M. Schumacher. 2002, also won by one M. Schumacher, because uh, that was famously his teammate Rubens Barrichello at the time uh, was, was was told to let over and yeah. you know let him buy and all that. That was that was Austria. That was the thing. Uh, this is that track. Before that was a McLaren in the hands of David Coulthard. Before that, Mika Hakkinen and so on. So it's a little hard because none, none of those guys are driving ago, right the now. Most recent one. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. Uh, so. Um, Hmm. I have to tell you, though, this is a total non sequitur, but it reminds me, um, since all those drivers have retired, did you know, uh, according to this article, I've not done my own research, but I'm willing to believe it, according to Autosport, that one Jensen Button is now the elder statesman in the Formula One driver lineup. As in actual oldest, not like most Grand Prix or whatever, but just oldest? Both. He has, he oh, is good. both good the him. most experienced and the oldest. Nice. Which means that I am officially older than the oldest Formula One, active Formula One driver right now. Because I am older than Jensen Button by a month. This is my single, this is your, single applause Your for golf that. clap applause for Well me. done, sir. Well, well, I'm sure it'll happen to me soon enough. What, 31. Well, That's pretty I, old for I an would, F1 driver. If trends continue this way, it'll happen in about three years. Yeah, well... There you go. Um, I don't know where to go from there. <laughs> you were predicting. I was predicting. I was looking at, I, I kind of got lost on the history of the Austrian Grand Prix and A1 ring, which is now called the Red Bull ring because they bought it and so on. Well, Austria. Well, you know, Austria. Um, I guess the question is, I mean, uh, yeah, I think under normal circumstances, I, I, it, you know, if another Mercedes is going to fail, it's not going to be in a way that I can cleverly predict. Um Rosberg really is on a tear, though. I mean, he is really doing well. He properly outqualified Hamilton that is a in solid Canada. Counter argument. Um, and I'm, I don't know. I mean, it's, it's there I guess, is, I will admit, an apathy to actually getting on the computer and having to press buttons no, to actually I'm, change I'm, my prediction. I'm at the buttons right now. No, this, I'm saying for me. Oh, for you. <laughs> I'm like, it's not that hard. I'm at the page, but for you, right? You know, as someone who's that old, I guess it would be difficult that does to play a role. Well, find you your know, computer, my get arthritic hands, computering glasses on, and all that. Try to try to figure that out. Yeah, I'm going to go Rosberg. Rosberg. No, no, I am going to split the thing, and I'm going to say that Hamilton will get pulled, but that Rosberg will win the race. Ooh. I am going to do a split thing. I do believe that the A1 Austrian racetrack is considered a fairly tight one. It's not as tight as the Hungaro Ring, which is notoriously tight and hard to pass on as all racetracks are yeah but i do believe that see because it was called a one ring which just kind of makes me want steak and steak sauce on it um now it's called red bull ring which at least like red bull it's like okay yeah you know i can i can go without that that's that's fine you want to put red bull on your steak now? no but steak sauce i don't (laughs) you still want steak sauce? yeah now that you said that so (laughs) my prediction is hamilton for the pole position, Rosberg for the win. I will split the strategy. Somehow I'll probably still get hosed. But hey, that's uh, that's how it goes, and we will see. And uh, thanks, as always, to Prediction Stud himself, Neil Popham, for uh, maintaining the uh, Predictions app. I know there's been this some little... This is a great part of our podcast. It's a lot of fun. And Neil is really 
just done us a huge favor in putting this together with Facebook, and he updates it, and he troubleshoots things for people. Right, I mean, people come up with their questions job. or problems, and he tells them how to fix it and whatever. It's it's a great job. So thank you, as always, for that, Neil. And uh, I'm sad to say, he, you know, sometimes he does quite well in the predictions. Um, he's not this year. I don't see him in the top uh, top <laughs> few spots. So uh, you know, for a while there was some, you know, when he was leading the championship, like it's like, well, is anyone fact checking when Neil's predictions go in? Because he could monkey that around. But no, he is a <laughs> he is a stand up guy and has uh, has done that uh, for us for years. Yes, now. And he stands up when he monkeys around. Right. Speaking of stand-up guys, thank you again, Jamie Price, uh, for commenting with us and uh, sharing photos and sharing your audio clips and whatnot, and uh, and of course, you know, appearing on our show. I am so, so glad you mentioned Jamie Price. If you go to jamiepricephoto.com, and that is J-A-M-E-Y pricephoto.com, and you go to archive, and then you go to Canada, he has a section of historic Grand Prix cars. These are 70s and 80s era Formula One cars blasting around the track, and the images he captured are brilliant. They're magnificent pieces. And then, of course, there is what he mentioned, the iconic Gilles Villeneuve Ferrari. Boy, it's just stunning to see. Fantastic photos and just great to look at. So I highly encourage folks to go to Jamie Price Photo um, this weekend more than usual, because it's just that's an extra treat. Yes, and uh, he can also be found on um, Twitter and Instagram and so on. I think at Jamie Price Photo on all those things. So um, if you're interested in what he does and who isn't, uh, then feel free to check him out there, and uh, you know we'll we'll go on from there. So we have what just uh, two weeks, and then we have Austria, and yes. uh, Beth will be back on European time, and then I'll actually be in England, I think, during the British Grand Prix. So I'll have to figure that out. And but that one's July what? Just I'm... after the Fourth of July. So yeah, like July five, six, seven, something like that. Um, uh, oh yeah somewhere in there yeah so anyway that's uh that's a thing and uh so we'll, we'll have to figure out exactly what the coverage is um just to be clear f1 austria is june 22nd that's two weeks from today um two weeks after that june or sorry july 6th is the british grand prix six ah just to have that on everyone's calendar and make sure we're all on the same page there. and let me just off a of memory most likely after england we will be going to germany um right and uh, there's a week off and then it's hockenheim and then a week after that, Hungary. Is Hungary, and then a summer break, and then Spa. Yes. Is Spa the end of August or the beginning of September? Spa is the end of August. That is August 24th. Oh, oh, not even the very, very end. And then after that, Monza. Oh, Monza. Monza. Oh, man. Slash. And Taste of the Race to Pizza. Oh, so many things. Yeah, potential um, spanner in the works for Monza plans. <laughs> My wife has a baby due that day as well, so that may be a thing, having a daughter slash watching a race and eating pizza. Are you There's... or are you not the father of this baby? I am, yes. As the father... The father will set the schedule for that baby, and you tell that baby <laughs> not to come out. All right. Well, we'll see. I don't you think I have any your, say in Go such to your things. womb. <laughs> yes. Okay. Um, but, dude, we didn't even mention it. Somehow we've gotten this far in the show. Lamar is next week. And that is true. That is great. So that doesn't have a whole lot to do with our show. We will probably be live tweeting some of it. Um, it's a long race, 24 hours, and unfortunately there's always other things that come up because uh, there's, there's, there's family events and there's all kinds of different things that uh, are, are equally exciting and very much worth everyone's time and attention, but not Lamar. Um, well, mm, yeah. yeah. So, goes, I, you know, I have to say, though, speaking of family, uh, I actually took my mother with me to the Detroit Grand Prix last weekend, and she was very interested to watch the race. 
I don't think it hurt that I was serving wine to her. But dude, your mom's cool anyway. She no, she'd go to the race and hang out and have oh, a good time. I mean, she, she had, took you to the Grand Prix the first place, didn't she? And that got you all excited about no, cars. Well, I, was I took her that oh, time well, too. But well, yeah, well, there you go. <laughs> it's. So she was up for it then, too. She was up for it. So maybe maybe I need to integrate family into watching racing a little bit more. So if I can have a birthday party for my nephew, we, can just, we just all go to Lamar, I think. Is, <laughs> and, then, and then it's going to be great. Well, yeah, there's, there's all kinds of schedule being planned. But, yeah, Lamar is a big deal, and we're definitely going to be keen to watch because uh, I know for no other reason – uh, and there are many others. I, I want to see how Mark Weber does, how he gets on, that kind of thing. I mean, just Porsche versus, you know, yeah, versus oh, Audi Porsche versus, versus Toyota. Audi. I mean, the whole thing. They it's... are ultimately owned by the same company. The Volkswagen Automotive Group, um, VAG, own both Porsche and Audi. Both teams have independently spent approaching half a billion dollars. That means the company as a whole has spent a billion dollars to go race against each well, other. to market themselves around the world, really. Okay, but, but still. So if Toyota wins after all that for VAG, if Toyota can hey. come out and win, which is very likely, they've won some of the other WC. That's anyway, very possible. there's plenty of cool reasons to watch it. So definitely keep, uh, you know, keep in touch with us on social media and whatnot because uh, there's, you know, we might be able to put together a video or a podcast or something about it, but no guarantees because, you know, things. Because things. But uh, either way, uh, if, you're, if, you know, if, you're, if you're following this show, you probably should also be following Le Mans because it's just so freaking cool and hopefully it's going to be a really good race. We have uh, all kinds of exciting reasons to look forward to it this year. And the sound is better? The sound is good. You got right? turbocharged diesel engines and hybrids and all kinds of sweet things and yeah, man, it's all good. So um, definitely um, just just as like a general heads up to the world. Also, it's Father's Day in the U.S. here. So Lamar, Father's Day, whatever else is going on, good stuff. Keep in touch with us. I am Jim Lau. And I am Rob Warner. Good night.